Imagine all the Viking longships that sailed into Waterford. The fishing boats and sailboats, the warships and traders, trawlers and tankers, all the water traffic in and out. Arriving into this fjord down the centuries, Norsemen, Otter Irla and Ivar, Jermud McMorrow and Strongbow, Henry II, Henry VIII's illegitimate son Thomas Stukely and Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law Henry Ireton. So many sailed from here too. Among them Catherine O'Shea from Port Law who left for England in the 1880s after the collapse of the cotton industry. Her great-granddaughter is Hilary Mantel, the brilliant novelist of Tudor England and Wolf Hall. That link seems absolutely right. A line of time and connection reimagined and brought into the light. Light on water links many people here. Alright, Victor. Did you bring up one of them bulkers yesterday or the day before? No, I'm on my, I'm on my week off. One came in yesterday, came from Algeria, I think. If she came from Algeria, it's probably the likelihood fertiliser. Yeah. yeah. See you, Victor. Okay, guys. You're listening to The County Measure. I'm Vincent Woods. We're making a journey around Ireland 100 years after independence to get a measure, to get many measures of all 32 counties. We're looking at place, landscape and the people who shape their lives within these boundaries of community and county. In this series, I'm hoping to get a fresh understanding of each county and its people as we shape a radio atlas of Ireland. Each boat has its own personality, so they behave differently on the river. So even when you're hauling nets, or even when you're keeping up to them with the oars, or even if you're rowing them, this one, her backside will always turn into the wind, whatever way the wind is blowing, even if the tide is going the opposite direction. Everywhere you go, in Waterford, as in all counties, you meet good people committed to keeping the knowledge of their place and community. Andrew Doherty is one of these, and we take to the water in his boat. Did she ever have a name, Andrew? Yeah, that boat is called the Mule. Um, and she was called the Mule because she had her own mind and couldn't be, couldn't be bended. Uh, so, uh, but like anything, you, you learn to work with it, you know. You learn to work with the Mule. Andrew Darty is the author of several books about the maritime history of the area around Cheek Point, an old fishing village at the intersection of three rivers, the Three Sisters, the Barrow, Nor, and Shore. We have Cheek Point behind us here, um, which is in County Waterford. And then when we look across, we have the, the Barrow Bridge, which spans the Barrow and the Nor, the River Nor. They flow down and they meet with the River Shore here at Cheek Point, and the three of them then flows one out the Waterford Estuary to create the Waterford Estuary, out to the Hook Head and Dunmore East on the Waterford side. There would have been so much history traversing this estuary. But for you, I think it was primarily a, a fishing spot and, and your home. Uh, fishing was what you did as a child. It was what you saw every day. It was all around you. And it was always in the company of fishermen we were. So they were mending nets, they were repairing boats, they were telling yarns. And we were there helping, learning about the, the nets, roping a net, mending a net, you know, ranging over a net. Um, you didn't know you were learning. But I suppose the big thing about it was we all had boats and we all, you know, thrived on the river. And I'm sure none of the men got particularly rich from it. <laughs> so uh, the fishing died out in 2006. It, it basically it finished by law um, and they didn't come down on the quay. The older guys didn't come down on the quay. There was no reason for them to fit men nets. There was no reason for them to look after the boats. They, they just didn't understand or couldn't comprehend what had happened. You need to be able to read the river. You need to know its moods and you need to know 
if the wind is like if the wind is a particular way and the the, the sun is a particular way and that the tides are either neap or spring there's there's different places you set the nets and you just can't learn that except that you actually experience it and do it and a generation now has lost has missed out on that um, so it makes me to be brutally honest it makes me really desperately sad when I think about it And there was something I wasn't aware of, was the whole thing of press gang. But it wasn't uncommon in this part of Waterford. No, it was very common. And, you know, the first time I heard about the press gang, it was from my father. And um, we were fishing not far from this point, just a little further down uh, on the ebb tide in the night time. And the next thing we heard another boat approaching. Uh, my father said, he said, if this was the uh, Napoleonic Wars, he said, I'd have to throw you over the side of the boat to keep you safe. He said, did you ever not hear the press gangs? Local men could be essentially taken captive and press ganged yeah. into the British Navy. Yes, they were basically, they were Royal Naval officers and men and their role was to actually physically take a man out of a boat and put him aboard a naval vessel and impressed them into the service of the Navy for seven years. They wandered around Waterford Quays taken men off at the side of the quay. They went into bars in Waterford City and took the men out of them and tried to press gang them. And there's also great stories of a lot of the women on the quays of Waterford and uh, they standing up for the men that were being taken and pitched battles and the police and the army having to be called out to try and get calm back in the city from the activities of the press gangs. The women of Waterford fighting the press gangers, taking a stand in a man's world. A striking detail from not too ancient history. Hi, Al. Hello. Hello, how Vincent, are you? Vincent, how are you? Nice to meet you, Vincent. Bernie. 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 Eva. Bed, lovely to meet you. My first time at a boxing club. <laughs> Much of this spirit chimes with a small group of boxers we meet in Dungarvan Boxing Club. Bernie Lannan is with her 13-year-old daughter, the national boxing champion, Ava Lannan. Yeah, um, we came down, it was on a Monday evening, her brother was training, and Ava just asked, could I hit the bag? And I'm like, no, 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 you can't. So off she went down and started hitting it. Killian was here at the time, the coach. Jesus Christ, he said, six? He said, she's hitting a bag like that? He said, we'll have to keep her. <laughs> Seven years later, she's still here doing it. We're like, I couldn't ever picture myself stepping in between those ropes, getting a belt. <laughs> Yeah, but, well, you've, but you've got into coaching, haven't you, a bit? A bit. I've started it, yeah, just for the fact that she's here. We have something in common now. What does the coaching involve? Keeping the discipline with him. She loves and I shout at her. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, no, it is a lot. It's, you have to earn their trust as well. Is your mum a tough coach? Yeah, she always shouts at me inside the <laughs> ring. Always. She always shouts to move her head and put up her guard and everything. I hate when she does this. Instructions. I give instructions. I don't shout. I give instructions. <laughs> Work the body. That's it. Hooks to the body now. Back up to the head. That's it. Combinations. Come on, double them up. Double them up. That's it. Big backhand now. That's it. And again, big backhand. I'm Christina Desmond and I'm a boxer here at Dungarvan Boxing Club. It's a sport that you have to fight and you have to fight for yourself and fight for who you are. It gives us that extra bit of independence and uh, that's what I am, to be fair. I like to be the boss and I like to be doing something that someone else isn't doing. And now we're doing better than any man at any boxing in Ireland anyway. I can, I can put that down. and That can be said. <laughs> it's the truth. Yeah. And, it's, and it's brilliant. So in, in a way, too, for you, you would say that, that boxing is about independence as well as fitness. Is there that kind of psychological element in it? Absolutely, yeah. It's only you and the other girl in the ring. And um, if you're not fit and if you're not ready for the fight, you're not going to be able to fight inside there. You're not going to be able to defend yourself. And, Christina, are you focused now on potentially getting into the Olympics 
24, Paris. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the goal. Um, I've been very, very, very close on making the last Olympics, but it just didn't happen for me. Uh, that is the plan going forward. I've been a bit lazy in the past couple of months. Uh, things didn't go my way, but uh, I'm back now training. But um, I'm aiming to make the national team again by the end of the year. Uh, that's my plan. So I have to make that to try and go anywhere else anyway. <laughs> Feeling you'll make it, definitely will. Eva, what do, what do your friends in school make of your boxing? I think it's actually kind of cool I do boxing, because like if anyone's at them, like I'll get my friend Ava after you, and it's, like, it's kind of funny. They always come to my fights and they're in town, and like it's good support, like, like people there to, like, can call my name. And are any of them inclined to come in and start doing a bit of boxing as a result of you? No, none of them will come. Not even train, none of them. Some are put off like, oh, there's all boys, boys, boys. Like, if you agree, if you're a small girl, six, seven years of age, you're coming in, and all you see is, oh my God, there's 20 boys here. It's just, get on with it. You're the same as them, get on with it, if not better than some of them. I would put it down that there's a lot to think that uh, boxing is a poor man's sport. Boxing has a lot of poverty in it and it does have a lot of people that don't have much in life, but they have boxing and that's, that's the main thing. As, as a wider community, like, I'm a member of Vanguard, as you call it here. I, I know what goes on in the background. So when, when, it, when a small child comes into this club, you treat them as, as normal. You treat them all as the same. Um, and when, when they do come in here, it's just crazy to see them at the bag, just focusing on themselves for once and focusing on what they want to do. So I train here with my colleagues and I train here with, with the people that I have to deal with on the streets on, on a daily basis. So this club is one of, one of the best, to be honest with you. And um, it's hard to find girls to come into clubs because they're afraid that they'll be seen as the lowlights in the, in the society. And uh, to be honest with you, it's, it's far from that. Um, I thrive on that, that the people look at us like that. You get all like, your anger out and like, you just get to hit people and like, when you have stuff going on, like, just get it out in the ring. She is so grumpy before a fight. Yeah. Yeah. So grumpy. It's just getting nervous, like, when everyone's just watching you and, like, it's just you they're watching. And, like, just, like, everyone's shouting at you and then all the stuff they're saying, like, you don't hear everything. It just shakes and, like, I don't know, it just shuts off. And, like, yeah, butterflies. If you don't have that, if you're bouncing off walls, you're, you're not ready for the fight mentally, you have to be nervous. A Thursday farmer's market in the square in Dungarvan is one of several which have made that town and West Waterford in general a destination for food lovers. We all know the Waterford Blanc, or bread roll, famous the world over, but another bread is attracting queues in Dungarvan. It's called langosh, and it's a Hungarian breakfast bread. Christina Halloran runs Hungary Bites, and she's doing her best to put langosh on the map. Langosh is um, such a typical Hungarian street food. It's a dough, it's savoury, it's shaped like the pizza, but it's not baked, it's fried. Traditionally, it's topped with garlic and sour cream and cheese. Look, it's, it's flesh fried, so it's not soggy or anything like that. It's crispy, actually, on the outside, and it's really nice and fluffy in the inside. You do have to be careful with your cholesterol, I suppose. <laughs> Thank you very much. Enjoy. Thank you. See ya. See ya. Uh, hi, I'm Wayne Hallern. I'm Christina's husband. So the first time I had a langosh, we went on holidays to Hungary to where Christina's from. And we went to a swimming pool. And Christina said, we're going to have some breakfast. And it's this pizza looking thing arrived. Um, and it's quite big. So the garlic, the sour cream, the cheese, the crispiness, the chewiness. I was hooked. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. This is the dough. It's rising twice. That's why it's so fluffy. And then we shape it into a small bowl. And then just on a tray, we spread it. It has a bit of a technique. 
because the dough is quite wet. It's not that easy as it looks. As you see, it's almost like making a pizza. Shade it into a nice circle. And then just drop it into the oil. Sometimes we come up with different toppings, but today it's garlic, sour cream and cheese. It's called Sajtos Tejfeles és Fokhagymás. So in 2006, I, we drove to Ireland from Hungary in a Peugeot 308. Times were tough back then, and the reason for why we picked Warford or why I picked Warford, because where I'm coming from is a city called Szeged, and is also known by the city of sunshine. And as we were looking for where to come in Ireland, we came across with a sunny southeast. So that was it. I was done. I was like, I'm not looking for anything else. This is where I want to go. You're listening to The County Measure with Vincent Woods and this week we're in County Waterford. Travel out along the coast from Dungarvan and another world unfolds. Nadesha, Gaeltacht, Nanesha, part of the old Gaelic territory of what became Waterford County, is beautifully situated. It has two parishes on Rhine and on Shanfubble, with a thriving community and a deep sense of connection to and pride in its language, culture and landscape. This is the place of singers Nicholas Tobin, Anya Kali, and Mulqueen and many others. At Helvig Head, I meet a young secondary school teacher and author, Ogi O'Kelacher, who grew up in Anrayan, loves it, and is known to everyone as we walk near the harbour. So we'll be suitably impressed. Oh, I'm very impressed. Come to the well, sure, it's the the Ogi on on Rhine um, ring home to you and and a place I think you love dearly. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about growing up here. Well, we're I was very lucky to grow up here. I went to school. My parents moved here. My mother was from Limerick, from from Castle Connell. And my father is from uh, Ventry, Count Raw, Kerry. So they moved here and they opened, they bought uh, Tick and Kjol, the pub. And they would have had many nights in, in Tick and Kjol with the famous uh, Nicholas Tobin and all his brothers. And sure, then the Clancy's came along. and Great nights, I'm sure. And of course, your mother, Zan Queen, would be a very well-known singer. Okay, thinking about uh, summer here and summers here would have brought lots of students and Oh it was wonderful. It was wonderful as a teenager to have <laughs> to have all these Dublin girls and Cork girls and uh, from all over the country coming down. Uh, the buzz and uh, the crack around the place because at the time the locals were allowed to go down to the Cayleys 
It's something I tell the teenagers that are in front of me. You actually had to go up to someone and say, hello, how are you? <laughs> Rather than texting yeah. them on the phone or matching them on Tinder, you had to earn whatever you got. Yeah. <laughs> earn your right to dance. Yeah. 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 Stories unfold in a short time of walking, talking and listening. One story or memory we hear from local historian Nicholas O'Griffon, who's sitting in his car at Helvig Pier. Nicholas points to a plaque on the wall of the pier which commemorates the nave Garvon, which was blown up by a mine in May 1945, with the loss of three of her four crewmen. It was a minefield all the way at that time from Kinsale to the Hook. Where the three mile limit, you see, that's all you could go to. But they went outside the limit because the war was over and they, they, they taught her. There was uh, three lost. They were blown to pieces in the back of the boat. They were blown to smithereens. The only thing was found that one of them, his cap was found. And they buried it over in the graveyard with, with, with his father. And Paddy Whelan was, was also blown off of the boat and he grabbed the fish box. And he was over a half an hour in the water before he was picked up and he couldn't swim. And he was the only survivor. Johnny Griffin's body was brought in here. There was a mighty crowd in the pier. Of course, it was an awful time. It kind of shook the parish for a couple of years. But his body was brought in here. And, and there's an old tradition when he was brought in. He was brought on a door from here, all the way home in Knock and Power. And he was waked at Knock and Power. And he was buried a furrow morning in ring. Sad story. As we head to Waterford City, the Copper Coast UNESCO Geopark stretches along 25 kilometres of Waterford's coastline south of the Cumra Mountains. It was Ireland's first designated geopark and is a rare and beautiful slice of protected nature, rich cultural heritage and a bit of industrial history, copper mining once giving employment here. Waterford City has a good creative edge to it. Along O'Connell Street, there's the Phoenix Yard food market, lively pubs, and at the Garter Lane Theatre, there's a gig in the courtyard. Carter Lane flies the flag for music and the performing arts as well as theatre. And it's here I meet composer Chris Falconer, born, bred and buttered in Waterford. A recent work, Unseen Happenings, was commissioned by Garter Lane. Everything that happens in arts and culture, painting, theatre, music, there's lots of work that go on behind the scenes before anybody ever gets to see that work and particularly over the last couple of years when these institutions and places of culture have been shut down, there was still life happening behind those doors. It wasn't populated with people, but it was populated with ideas and workings that were preparing for when we kind of reopened again, and, and the buildings were lying in wait. Chris moved to Cork to study in 2010 and tells me about how Waterford City has changed since then. So when I went away, it was still, you know, 2010s, so things hadn't completely changed in Ireland and, you know, globally, economically and things like that. And I'd grown up with all these great art shows on in Waterford, like Spree or Garter Lane being available to people, Theatre Royal, and we had great gig venues like The Forum and Electric Avenue. And then when I came back to Waterford in 2013, 2014, a lot of those had closed. A lot of the events had kind of been scaled back. The city itself could have, kind of felt an economic shock from lots of places like Waterford Crystal a factory which would have been both a tourism pull as well as a generational job opportunity in Waterford. But then over the last 10 years, I've seen Waterford do what it does best and make cultural and festival situations to bring people back.
there was a medieval museum developed, there was the Bishop's Palace was restored. Spree was just on this weekend, the best I remember for years, especially the fireworks at the end. We've got food festivals now, we've got uh, at Christmas time, you know, we've got Winterville, all these things. So I think Waterford really decided, okay, we've been hit with some bad luck, so let's make it ourselves again and bring ourselves back up onto the, the table of interest. Would you spend much time out of, of the city? County Waterford is incredible. I, I mean, you've got the sea on one end, you've got mountains on the other, you've got these monuments that are, are from Celtic times through to Viking times. A lot of my generation moved home, a lot of my friends moved home because they chose that this is a this is a fantastic place with, like, you know, opportunities in tech, opportunities in culture, and then on your driveway you've got beautiful sandy beaches. I'm so happy to be here, and it's great to be able to say that as someone who would have at one stage wanted to live somewhere else as well, you know. You love your place, don't you? I do. Uh, I'm happy to be here, and I'm going to stay here. (laughs) Good. Good story. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks a million. Coming up on The County Measure, Nisha singing out and free, the pink plaques of Waterford City and walking the Comoros. You're listening to The County Measure with Vincent Woods. Walking the streets of Waterford, you get the feeling that this could have been a capital city. It has that go about it and it was the first city of Ireland. It also gave the nation its most enduring symbol. I think I've seen our national flag or representations of it more often here in Waterford than in any other county we've visited in the last while. The tricolour flies on private houses, is displayed in shop windows. I even saw a painted window box, green white and orange in Dungarvan. And I suspect the reason for all of this is because the flag has its origins here in Waterford. The young Ireland leader, Thomas Francis Marr, designed the tricolour based on the French tricolour after a visit to Paris in 1848. He came back here and the very first time the silk, green, white and orange tricolour flew in Ireland was at 33 in the mile, the Wolf Tone Club, here in Waterford City, on March the 7th, 1848. Became our national flag, of course, in 1937, and Waterford, it seems, is rightly proud of its origins here. Many people will know the celebrated Waterford Walls International Street Art Festival, literally painting the walls since 2014. A lesser-known initiative involving memory and the walls of the city honours some of the women of Waterford who made particular contributions to the life of the city and county or whose lives and stories deserve to be honoured. My name is Breda Murphy. And I am one of the people who initiated the Pink Plaque campaign along with uh, Eleanor Murphy and Anne Fitzgerald. And the Pink Plaque campaign began in order to increase the number of heritage blue plaques on the streets of Waterford City when we noticed that 60 or so blue plaques, only four of them were dedicated to women. We've increased that number by at least five in the last few years. Um, So we're here in Arundel Lane and we have two of the plaques and very fittingly beside one another, the Daly Sisters who ran the Poor Man's Cafe and the other one is the Cockle Women. And the Cockle Women, they were selling cockles here on this corner um, up to the 1970s, including my grandmother Ellie and my aunt Molly. Okay, so the Cockle Women honouring and remembering the women of Waterford City and County who sold cockles on these streets for many generations up to the 1970s. The women picked, dependent on the tides, from passage right up to the back strand in Tremor, wherever the cockles were more plentiful. Um, They picked on a Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, and on a Thursday they washed the cockles, 
they boiled them, they used a riddle to take the, the cockle out of the shell, they wrapped them in a calico and they prepared them for selling on a Friday in Waterford. That's what they did week in, week out. Um, so it wasn't an easy occupation by any means, but they looked after other poor families in the area and were very generous to them by all accounts. Rita Murphy walks from Arundel Lane to a townhouse on Manor Street. Offices, meeting rooms, kitchens, all home to the Waterford Women's Centre and childcare service. I don't believe the quince. Yeah, look at the size of them. Aren't they fabulous? Oh, that's beautiful. I haven't been in here, you see, since July in the pears. Brida was project coordinator there for 27 years. And in the back garden, I sit with Brida and some of the other women to hear about the centre, its work, and some of those who've crossed the threshold here over the years. So, Brida, maybe tell me a little bit, first of all, about the setting up of the Women's Centre here? The centre began in 1995. Um, I had started a women's group back in the early 90s. But when jobs became available, we couldn't apply for those jobs because we didn't have a qualification. So really, it was set up to provide women who were activists in their community with a qualification so we could get employment. And the initial group that went through got jobs in partnerships, got jobs in other centres, in community centres, in statutory organisations. So we really did have a big impact. Liz Power took over as project coordinator earlier this year. The Water Women's Centre from the early days was recognised that one of the major barriers for women to participation is childcare. Um, so in 2000, they started up a small childcare. I think they had seven children at that time attending. Now today, we have a childcare centre that supports 50 children to attend and participate in early years education. It's a major advantage to us to be able to support women in that way. I was um, a stay-at-home mum. I had um, a new child. She was just two, I think, when I first came to the centre in 2016. Anne Kavanagh-Drennan is a facilitator for the Health and Wellbeing Programme and a former participant in that programme. And um, I had to take redundancy from the job I was working in because I had no childcare. I was at home, um, no confidence, um, felt that all my identity was, you know, a mom, and really felt, I suppose, a little bit lost. And somebody said to me about the Women's Centre, why don't you go there and see, see, just see what happens? It strikes me as well that it's probably a place where these enduring friendships are made, uh, where there's, there's both real practical support and encouragement, but also a kind of an emotional contact and, and, and real friendships, solid friendships built. This, this magic happens when you walk in the, in the door. There's a warmth. Just Everybody just feels just close and supported and encouraged in all the stuff that you want to do. So Breathe and all the other coordinators and other facilitators here encouraged me to go back to college and um, I'm doing my level eight now in community education studies and I'm a facilitator here and I also work with other community development projects in Waterford as well. So yeah, I've, I've come really far considering the way I was when I came in the door. I'm Megan Nolan, I'm the author of the novel Acts of Desperation and I've written a short piece about watching football with my dad in, in the 2000s in Waterford, uh, Waterford Football Club, the Blues. I was 13 years old in early 2004 and Friday night in Waterford did not yet mean obscuring my school uniform in petrol stations, trying to obtain menthol cigarettes. In 2004, Friday night was football night and the regional sports centre was the place to be. Bright lights, small city, waft of the curry chips which stained my eager little paws lurid yellow. Waterford Football Club, the Blues, had just welcomed Alan Reynolds as player-manager and the legendary Paul McGrath as their director of football. I went along with my father, a lifelong fan, and that year a member of the club's board of directors. 
There was an undeniable sense of ascendancy and hope in the air on those nights, that years of devotion might be rewarded. The devotion wasn't mine to claim dividends on. I was just a stranger passing through before I learned what my own obsessions would be. Still, the mass of emotion excited me, the buoyant current of people walking eagerly in the same direction, allowing themselves a precious window of unburdened hope. The palpable prayer one could feel in the final minutes of a losing match, all that superstition being pushed towards such a small number of fallible young men. I knew nothing about football, but I did know something, even then, about the power and beauty of yearning. How desire for something you have no control over can fill you up and direct your life. It was a time of suspension, of strangely beautiful stasis. I could feel all the things which would enrich and destroy me about to arrive, but for the moment I remained safe, regarding them from a distance, from within the cosy sameness of a family routine and a game whose results I was only invested in at a remove. I watched my father's genuine agonies, biting his fingers, his pity extreme and anguished for some young player who had made a silly mistake and would now endure jeers. The months passed and I did care enough to cry once. In October, the Blues reached their first FAI Cup final since 1986, playing against Longford. And some confusion on the pitch meant the two footballs ended up in play, players looking uncertainly at them both, during which time Longford scored the winning goal. The injustice, the waste of it all, the feeling of my father's heavy disappointment, all accumulated so that I couldn't stand it and broke down. It was the feeling too that this was the end of something between us that would never quite return. I had become 14. There were other rituals for me to focus my emotions on now. I could feel somehow that this was the final match I would attend and we clasped hands in a moment of mutual consolation. You're listening to The County Measure with Vincent Woods and this week we're in County Waterford. The title track from an EP called I Am Not A Woman deals very energetically with the young musician's identity as gender non-binary. Nisha is a musician who moved from Dublin to Waterford in 2021. They take time out in the People's Park close to the river to talk about their music and life in the city. Yeah, I identify as non-binary because I, for my whole life, ever since I was born, I have never felt like a girl, just never. And as a kid, I think my mum said when I was three, I told her I wasn't going to wear dresses. Like, it was very clear from very small. Um, And I would have been quite a masculine kid. I think they were kind of wondering whether maybe I was a trans man or something. Well, right now in Ireland, I cannot legally identify myself as non-binary. It's been a thing in Indigenous cultures for millennia. And it's quite frustrating because in an official sense at all, I cannot identify as non-binary. I have to either be male or female, and I don't identify in either way. And the way I've been treated my entire life, like I've played drums and guitar, lots of male-dominated spaces that I've been in, and I've always been treated a certain way because I'm a woman. It really frustrates me, so... I just want to completely separate myself from that. So in the summer of 2021, I moved from Dublin to Waterford. I really loved it from the start. Um, I was able to busk straight away and... I got gigs in pubs very fast and I just found that because it's a smaller place things still happen face to face, they don't happen online as much and I really enjoy that I can go out into the city on a daily basis and meet people and make things happen that way rather than spending all day on my phone sending emails and making social media posts. People in Waterford are very kind so I don't get a lot of like 
abuse or necessarily people being like I'm not gonna accept you or people being mean or things like that but then on the other hand there's a lot of people here who have no idea what non-binary means they've never heard of it and you can ask them a million times to use certain pronouns or to not call you a girl and it's just never gonna sink in that can be tough because especially in Waterford the way everyone talks it's like well boy well girl so like I can't go anywhere without someone being like well girl well girl what's up and even though that's like a lovely sentiment, it can be tough to be constantly called a girl 24-7. <laughs> My parents, it took them ages to get it right. It's so many like, oh she, oh sorry, oh they, oh, oh sorry, oh I didn't mean to call you girl, oh you know, all that. And I think I appreciate that way more than someone who's just like, do you know what, I'm not going to try. You're just she to me, I'm too old or I'm too whatever, I don't want to change. Any effort at all, or even just meeting someone and saying, hi, nice to meet you, what pronouns do you use? Is a really brilliant way to just ask, just ask. Hello, Catherine. Hello. We'll follow you. Oh yeah, you can just we'll hop yeah. over this one, I think. Yeah. Catherine Dre is an artist, photographer, and writer who has just published *Solace*, an account of her life in rural Waterford, close to Tremor. The book documents a year in nature and remembers her mother, who died when she was a child. Catherine loves the ancient landscapes of the Dacia and with her I visit one of the most beautiful dolmens I've ever encountered, just below the hill of the Kalyuk, the hill of the Hag, at Goldstown. I love it because the way it's so enclosed, because you often see the photos of the ones in the burn and they're very exposed on the rock, but this is just so enclosed with these beautiful oaks. It's really majestic somehow. Yeah, I've never cool. seen a dolmen no. surrounded by yeah. by trees, never mind oak yeah. trees. It's it's mind blowing, isn't it? Like what it took, what it is, why it's there. <laughs> I love it. Like, it almost looks like the, the top part of the yeah. dolmen, that top stone, almost looks yeah. like a, a it's a cross between a he, an enormous arrow. Yeah, and a rocket yeah. that has yeah. landed, crash landed <laughs> into the oak grove. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it feels, huge. does feel like a shot of energy, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like and it's really vi visible huge. shot of energy. Imagine being here in the day when they're putting it up and they're walking around, going, "Have we got it right now, lads? Is it? What do you think? A bit more that way, a bit more this way, you <laughs> know? Like, <laughs> God, I think no, they did it perfectly. They did a beautiful job. Fair play to them. Catherine, are, are there times when you? feel connected back to your own mother who died when you were very young? It's like a feeling because I don't have a lot of memories of her so it's like a feeling so when I'm in that place of solace that's when I feel her you know because obviously she was nurturing I was very small at the time and that you know the love was, was there and it was coming <laughs> it was like a safe place so I definitely do feel connected here. I sort of always feel I've one foot here in Waterford, but I've one foot very much as an earthling. I sort of imagine myself as the the whole. I feel the whole thing, the whole planet, and um, yeah, our mothers are definitely there somewhere, aren't they? In our in our past, but also in our present in some way. In nature. Definitely in nature. Yeah. And lads, that's the hill of the kayak behind us going up there. I've been to the top of that a few times and I just, I don't know what the significance of it is, but I've come here with women and we've, we've done the circle dancing here, you know, at the solstice. There's a great song, you know, Who Are the Witches? Where do they come from? And we'd sing that here, uh, all women together. And, and I think even the time that we did that, I don't think we knew that the significance of that hill no, we never knew, and we were the witches, do you know? <laughs> we were coming here with all this sort of magic and 
hell of the kayak, wow. I thought only Bera had a kayak, we have one. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> They're everywhere. Before we leave Waterford, we climb the Cumra Mountains in the north of the county. These splendid mountains are celebrated in song and story and have been a haven and hiding place for rebels and outlaws down the centuries. One story in particular brought us to an area outside the village of Rathgormick. The story of the 18th century highwayman William Crotty begins for us around a group of old stones almost buried in a forest. Straight through, go across the bridge there now. So you picture this place 100, 200 years ago. This was out of the way. This is why I, I reckon it was a hideaway. My name is Anthony Walsh. We're, we're right under Crotty's lake where Crotty the robber, as they called him, was a hide for years and years. Robin from Lord Water and a few more of those lords around. But when he stole stuff, he allegedly gave, gave it to the people, the poor people. Sheep, cattle, anything probably. So he had to, he'd have to hide him because he was going to be hung if he was caught. A stonemason would tell you they were laid on top of each other. The back wall is there, but those big stones were laid on top of each other. And it was high enough to keep something in because they'd be out looking for him. Because I could imagine redcoats and horses riding here looking for stuff that was after being stolen, which they would have, because they were after him for years. Take it again, the walkway out here, just enough room for us to get through. I mean, you'd, uh, a cow or a horse to get through there, no problem. You'd, I suppose you'd have to call it Crotty's hideaway for his ill-gotten gains. <laughs> we climb from this lair up to the hills above the forest towards what is now called Crotty's Lake. Our guide, Mario McRory, knows the sweep and beauty of this land and the track and story of the Cumara's highwayman. We are looking down on the Shore Valley, the whole way into Waterford City and out to the sea at Dunmore East. You have sleeved them on on the horizon. The little oval-shaped yeah. one you can see on the horizon, that's known as Tory Hill. Oh, that's Tory Hill. So they say the Bronze Age people worship the sun from that point. It looks like they might well have a good spot to do it from. Beautiful, I mean, an extraordinary panorama. It is, it's beautiful. On a day like this, yeah. you know, oh God. It's, it's... Where else would you want to be? No. Mary, we're here at the mouth at the entrance to William Crotty's cave in the Comoros. Tell us a little bit about him and, uh, and his hideout. So William Crotty was a local highway man. He was a Robin Hood type character who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. Crotty would have robbed the local stagecoaches on the, on the Dungarvan line, just down below us there on the, on the roadhead, Vincent. Um, during that time, the All-Ireland was under British occupation and the British soldiers were known as redcoats. So they were constantly chasing William Crotty over the Commerce and eventually he was given up by a friend of his and a fellow gang member by the name of Norris and the British troops surrounded the cave and they waited for two days for Crotty to appear but he was a cute man and he was able to escape through a secret channel at the top of the cave but he was arrested later on not far away from this location and then he was taken to Waterford City where he was hanged and then his body was decapitated. The head was placed on a pike and left to decay for several weeks to deter anybody else from stealing from the Crown forces. Back at the forest below Crotty's Lake, we rejoin Anthony Walsh, 
who's with Alice Conanan. Hello, Alice. Hi, Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, we had a great few hours. It was fantastic. Both of them born and reared in this place. Anthony, you're a proud Waterford man. Uh, what is it in the county, what is it about the county that makes it particular and special for you? There was a survey done lately and it said that Waterford was the, the best county in Ireland to live in. I remember years ago I was up in Dublin on a bus and we were joking and laughing and I said, that's right boy, I said. And a fellow stood up, he said, oh, you're a Waterford man anyway, he said. <laughs> you know, <laughs> knew me straight away, like. Since the pandemic, we have opened up uh, for people to come and visit the lake and we have a little place where they can just chill out and have a coffee. You lived abroad, I think, for, for a few years, Alice. What drew you back to Waterford? I think the mountain has always been sort of in my soul, really. The Cumbria Mountains are spectacular. They're mystical. They draw you in. Having grown up here and when we were young, we used to go fishing to the lake um, we have such fantastic memories. I feel, I suppose, that Waterford has been a little bit forgotten about, but I think people are beginning to see that Waterford is the up-and-coming place to visit. On the up. I've travelled the whole lot of the mountains here since I'm, I'm 61 now. Since I was about 12 or 13, I was walking these hills. My brothers, we know every bit of them. We walked places we didn't even have maps. I think I was here before. And a funny thing happened one day. I was below making a little pathway out of a few stones. And this might sound crazy. I needed a stone a certain length, narrow. But as I rolled the stone in, it was like as if there was a flash of lightning. And I could see a pair of hands, but they weren't my hands. I got a flashback of the last man that held that stone. I do believe that stones can hold memories, like a videotape. And they can hold bad memories too. You know, you think of these, some of these old castles, a lot of bad stuff went on. And I feel that I was here before, you know. It's just unbelievable. Now if people might say he's cracked, which is probably, could be possible too, but <laughs> cracked in a good way. Well, you have the look of a Viking. <laughs> so so you, yeah, might, would, you yeah. might well have, yeah. have been moving, moving stones around a long time ago. Well, in a, in a different life, I was clean cut shaven. <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm letting it all go now, you know what I mean? The spirit of place can be hard to define, but you feel it. There's spirit in abundance in all of Waterford and its people. A unique corner of this island, singular, rich, unexpected. Sit in a garden by the sea here or travel the rhododendron-rich winding mountain roads and you know you're in the heart of Ireland. You'll probably even spot the tricolour fluttering in the wind. From Waterford we look north to County Louth, the smallest county with gigantic character. That's next week's County Measure.